I hope you've already worshipped this morning. Two great songs as we think of the words. You know, whether you like the style of uh, Even So Come Lord Jesus or Be Thou My Fount, if you were thinking of the words of either one of those songs, you could not help but worship. What a great and an awesome God we have. And what a privilege to gather with this people today. Thank you for coming and being with us. This morning I'm going to op- ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the church's manual. The church's manual. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This, this text is really the key to 1 Timothy. Almost every book of the Bible, there's a key verse that gives you a lot of meaning behind what this book is actually about. And what we're going to read this morning is that key text. It's also the crescendo that we've been moving toward and that will flavor the rest of our our sermons. This is the midway. We're finishing up chapter 3. We have three more chapters to go. And so if you would, stand with me and let's read together. 1 Timothy 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up. In glory. You may be seated. Join with me as we pray. Father, we believe that we've worshiped you so far. We've sung wonderful praises to your name. Prayers where we long for Jesus to come back. Prayers for our eyes to be set on Jesus. So this morning we come before you and continue worshiping you by opening up this book you've given us. These words that you inspired to be written down, may they come alive to us even in this moment as we study it, as we explain it, as we surrender to what you say. May we hear today these words, not as the words of men, but as the words of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Owner's manuals are not so much used today. I think there are a number of reasons for that, but just so that I can make sure I bring our younger generation along, I I thought maybe it would be fitting to go to Wikipedia and try to understand what an owner's manual really is. So follow along with me. I'm going to read part of what is stated in this description of an owner's manual. An owner's manual, also called an instruction manual or a user guide, is an instructional book or booklet that is supplied with almost all technologically advanced consumer products such as vehicles, home appliances, and computer peripherals. Continues on in that article, until the last decade or two of the 20th century, it was common for an owner's manual to include detailed repair information such as a circuit diagram. However, as products became more complex, this information was gradually relegated to specialized service manuals or dispensed with entirely as devices became too inexpensive to be economically repaired. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? 
as we see how things evolve and change over time and over the last couple of decades, many, according to Wikipedia, understand that it's less expensive to get something repaired than just throw it away and buy a new one. And so all the owner's manuals that we so dutifully collected in files and would go back and refer to, a lot of that's obsolete. And so our kids may not have the kind of files that we kept to try to keep up with all the owner's manuals that we would have had. But I would submit to you today that the church will never be done away with. It will never be dilapidated. It will never be defeated. It will never stop its work. In part because the value, now now hear this, the value of the church is such a great price, and we know the value because of the purchase price. The value of the church is so great that it will always need the work and the revival and the reshaping and the reforming that only God can do. But not only the price that's been paid, but also the promise that's been made. Now think about it. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. In other words, he's promised that he's going to do his work through the church. There's not another means. There's not another option. It's either the church or nothing. Jesus said, I will build my church. So much so that he said, one day I'll come back for my church. He said, I, I, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am one day. So the church is never going to be obsolete. Even as an owner's manual of certain products may be today, the church's manual is always in play. Now, how did we get this uh, owner's manual? Well, well, think with me background-wise. God used Paul to write this owner's manual for the church. Now, a little later on, uh, when you get to the book of 1 John, there's almost like an owner's manual for what a Christian should look like. But in our case, we're looking at the pastoral letters, particularly 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus are all the, the pastoral letters. And 1 Timothy particularly states the fact that it is a manual for us to live by, how the church collectively should carry out its ministry and the work that we should do. Now, the Bible is not a magical book, but it is a supernatural book. It didn't fall from the sky, and there are no special glasses that you have to have to read its words and to translate it and interpret it. Now, it is nice to know a little Greek and a little Hebrew along the way, but it's not a magical book. However, it is a supernatural book. It is from God. It is about God. And it helps us to know how to live our lives for God. God used human means to communicate his purpose, his plan, and his perfections. Paul wrote 13 of these books in the New Testament. Now, we know there there are 66 books in the Bible. 27 of them are in the New Testament. Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament. What, What qualified him to do that? Why did God choose Paul? Well, first, Paul was saved. When you read back earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you see Paul makes it very clear in verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. You see, God saved Paul, not because he deserved it, but just out of his mercy and his grace, God reached down and saved a sinner. God changed Paul's life. He He was saved, but he was also called. 
Earlier in the letter, Paul is describing God's call on his life. Even in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle, one who's been sent, one that God has called out, designated. Every New Testament book has its origins in an apostle. It's one of the reasons it's accepted as inspired by God. It's accepted into the canon of Scripture. And, of course, even down in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1, we see that call. I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. There were very specific things that God had called Paul to do. And one of those, uh, among being a church planter, among them being a a, a disciple maker, uh, being a theologian, all of this, God had called him to be an apostle. And in doing so, God was preparing him to write scripture. So not only was he called, but he was prepared. If we were to go over to Galatians chapter 1, we'd see a time in Paul's life when he went aside for a period after he was saved and God was working in him, developing him, growing him. And then God began to uh, allow him to interact with the other apostles and God began to use him strategically. You, You see, God was preparing Paul even before he was saved to be a scripture writer. God was preparing Paul as he was saving him and God was preparing him after him he saved him to write down these words that we would need today. He was prepared. But then he was also inspired. As Paul wrote the second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, remember what he said in, in verse 16? All scripture is inspired. God breathed. God gave us uh, his very heart and what was written down, all scripture is God breathed. It's inspired and is useful, profitable for uh, doctrine and instruction, uh, excuse me, correction and rebuke and instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so Paul was pre- inspired to write these words down. Now, people every day can be led by the Holy Spirit. You know, when we get saved and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, God gives us His Word and the Spirit will direct us according to the Word of God. But there are historical occasions when God, by His Spirit, does something miraculous. You think about how the perfect Son of God came and lived in flesh. God did something miraculous a historical event. You think about the perfect Spirit of God who who came on the day of Pentecost and lives in human hearts. God miraculously did something by His Spirit in both of those. And each time a letter or a book in the Bible was written, God was bringing His perfect Word through human flesh. God's done something miraculous in giving us the very Word of God, and in this case, through Paul in the book of 1 Timothy. I love the fact that Paul writes about the church because it's evident that he understands the church. He writes about it in all of his letters. Sometimes he's refuting false teachings so that the church doesn't get corrupted. Sometimes he's rebuking people because they're living in sin and he's calling them out. Sometimes he's giving instructions for how the church ought to operate. And in this case, he's giving a very personal letter to a pastor in Ephesus, Timothy, to say, when you're leading the church, Timothy, this is what it ought to look like. If we were to, and let's do that for a second. Hold your place here. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 for a second. We know that Paul is writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus. 
And think about this letter that Paul wrote to the church itself in Ephesus. Because he's describing the church. We could, we could look at lengthy passages in chapters 2 and 3 and really get some, some great theology about the church. But let me focus you in on verse 18 for a second. Ephesians 2 and verse 18. For through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I love those passages where the Trinity uh, is mentioned all together in a verse. Like the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here we have Christ and the Spirit and the Father. God is one and yet he exists eternally in three persons. And how is that played out in the church? Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens... Did you know before Christ came into your life, you were a stranger and an alien to God? You were foreign. Another place that the the Bible actually calls us enemies of God. We're outside of the family of God. We're working against the things of God before we become a part of the family of God. But you, that is, you are following Christ, you are saved, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is the focus, and he gave his word through the apostles and the prophets who wrote it down for us so that we would have a record of who God is and what he expects. In verse 27, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So again, what a wonderful picture of the church, this dwelling place of God. When we gather together, God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. But there's a special movement of God and presence of God when His people come together. And even when we scatter as His people, after we've gathered like this today, God goes with us to help us. But when the church is gathered, it's what He's doing to make Himself known in incredible ways. We come together to be equipped. But it's a testimony to the world of who we love. We love Jesus. It's a testimony that we love each other. And it's a witness to the world that we're able to gather and worship like this. So, Paul understood the nature of the church. I think that if we understood it like Paul understood it, we would work even harder to be one family. It's easy to get caught up in our own ideas of church and what we want. But if we understood that we're one body, we might work a little harder at being one body. We'd treat it differently if we realized it's his. And even pastors like myself, there are certain things that it it would be easier, maybe more expedient, maybe more popular to do certain things. Maybe we could even attract a greater crowd if we would just fudge here or fudge there or be a little bit more like the world. But it's not ours to do that with the church is God's and we should treat it like his it's beautiful to him and we should treat it like it's his listen to what Richard Baxter in his famous work for pastors said about how pastors should view the church and I think as well as church members nor is a man fitted to be a minister of Christ who does not have the proper public spirit towards the church Now, that's a mouthful even of itself, isn't it? If you have uh, a person who is a leader in the church who's always talking bad about the church, 
I, I don't think that's appropriate. Look, look at it here. He needs to delight. This is leader, a leader, a pastor. He needs to delight in its beauty, long for its happiness, seek for its good, and rejoice in its welfare. He must be willing to spend and to be spent for the sake of the church. When we see whose it is, it makes a big difference. We treat it differently. Pastors, elders, deacons, church members. And so how do we know what to do? Well, we look to the manual. He's given us an instruction guide. He's given us an owner's manual. He's the owner, and we're carrying out the instructions that he's given us. So I have five questions I want to cover from this text this morning in 1 Timothy 3. First question is, how did we get this manual? How did we get this manual? Now, now in verse 14, Paul is saying how much he wanted to go to Ephesus and be with Timothy and be with the people there in Ephesus. And he said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, and he moves on in to verse 15. How, does, how did God communicate who he is and his plan? Through writing. Paul said, I am right. at some point, all scripture had to be written down. What we have had to be written down at some point. And it's interesting that as many of the writers write, they talk about writing it down. They observe something special about what God did to lead them, to bring them to that point. You see the sovereignty of God to bring Paul to this point where he wants to go. It's in his heart to go. God is moving him, but God has kept him from going. So what else could he do but to write down these instructions. And God in his sovereignty knew that we in the year 2021 would need these instructions. What a great and a gracious God we have to write down for us who he is, what he's like, and what his expectations are. I think Paul had some understanding that God was working through him to write these words down. One of his brothers, a great church leader, Peter, did also recognize that God was working through Paul to write these words down. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. There was a, a process of canonization, that is the collection of these 66 books that we now have. So how did, how did they get collected? Well, the church began to acknowledge that there was something special about these writings. And especially with the New Testament, we see that they were all related and had their foundations in an apostle. But we also see that they were being accepted by the early church as Scripture, on par with what had already been collected for the Old Testament. And so when you pick up in 2 Peter chapter 3, notice down in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's why he hadn't come back, right? It's not because he's lazy or it's not because he's not aware of what's going on, but he wants more people to come into his family. He loves, he created people. He created them to know them, to know him and to enjoy him and to live with him forever. So count the patience of our Lord as as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul, now this is Peter writing, just as our beloved Brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now that's in part what scripture is. It's someone writing down the wisdom that God gave them. And it's a closed canon, by the way. It's not to be added to and it's not to be taken from. It's a closed canon. But notice as the church observed this and as Peter saw it, verse 16, as he does in all his letters... 
when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. There's a lot to unpack in that text, but I wanted you to see Peter was already observing that God was doing something special through Paul in writing down these letters. The early church was already accepting them, and they were being collected so that we would have what we have to know how to live in the day that we live. Now, Peter also wrote about what that looked like for Paul to write them down. In Second Peter chapter 1, if you'll notice in verse 20... 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Have, have you heard the world say that before? Well, that's just a man's perspective, the Bible. And Peter's saying, no, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just like a sailboat is carried along by the wind, so these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They wrote down the very words that God intended for us to have. We have the Word of God. It's why we call it the Word of God. It's why we call it Scripture, holy, that these are writings from God. Uh, We've been given this from God. God communicated through humanity, through men like Paul and Peter, apostles, so that we could have a record of who he is and what he expects out of us. So can we trust this manual? Can we trust it? Look look back in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. Now, that's the confidence that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Do you want to know what a church should look like? you want to know what a church should do? Well, we've got it. You can know. You don't have to have a lot of guesswork. There's a manual. We have a guide. The Bible is our guide, and particularly 1 Timothy. Now, again, 1 John, if I were to compare this out, 1 John, because it's a picture of what a Christian ought to, ought to look like, someone who follows Christ, this is, this is authenticating someone, giving them affirmation about their life and so by the end of that book first john 5 verse 13 says i have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know you have eternal life this is confidence you don't have to wonder you know if i died tonight where would i go you see, the Bible's given to us to show us, to teach us. We can know for sure we're in the family of God. We don't have to live in constant doubt. We don't have to pray a sinner's prayer a million times. We don't have to go to bed sweating, thinking, where would I go if I didn't? The, the Bible tells us how we can know God. It, it's, it's one story from Genesis to Revelation where we see creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. God created the world so that we could know Him, enjoy Him, and appreciate His beauty and glorify Him. Sin entered in, therefore causing a problem, making us alienated from God, separate from Him, disobedient, under the wrath of God. But God had a plan all along of redemption, how He would send His Son, the seed of a woman, who would come and who would be born of a virgin, who would die on a cross, who would be the sinless Lamb of God, and who would rise from the dead, and who would be seated in heaven. God had a plan for us. 
a plan of redemption. And one day that will be completed at consummation. And we have all the prophecies that are still to come about Jesus' second coming. You, you see, we can have confidence that you may know. Can we trust this manual? God, God meant for us to have confidence in his word. Now, some of you may say, well, that's fine. You're talking about what, what, these, what Peter and Paul maybe even said about themselves. But what other evidence do you have that this is the word of God, that the Bible is true? I think there are a number of things that we can point to, even outside the word of God, that points to the fact that this is the word of God. Archaeology just seems constantly comes back and confirms to us the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture, all kinds of things that pop up. But one of the most confident and reviving kinds of things happened in 1947 when some Hebrew children were out playing uh, over near the Dead Sea and there was a cave and they went in and they found these scrolls that had been stored and preserved. Now, if you know much about history in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a time when people began to really turn away from the Word of God. There, there are time periods in nations and time periods when people began to turn away from God and there were all kinds of stuff that was happening. And uh, Darwin and the historical critical method of studying the Bible and breaking it down in different sources and editors. And, and, and there was a, a time of enlightenment that people began to doubt and question the very Word of God and people were saying, there's no way you can trust this book. If it's a couple of thousand years old, certainly there have been errors and mistakes. And after all, it was men's ideas and passed down. There's no way that we could have anything that might be similar to what was originally written down. And when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were the oldest manuscripts that they had, they had known. And there were manuscripts that predated the time of Christ with the Old Testament. There were manuscripts of, of, of things that they were doubting and said, there's no way that could be true. But when they read those old manuscripts, it verified that what we have is the Word of God. It, it all lined up. And I mean, who, who makes us doubt the Word of God? It's the enemy, right? He's done it for, since the world was created. Did God really say? Remember with Adam and Eve, did God really say? And so God is a, a revealing God, a self-revealing God. He makes himself known, and he's made himself known through the written word, and it makes sense that he would attack us at that point. And I would say to our students who are in school, whether you're in a, a public school or whether you're in a private school or whether, whether you're homeschooled or whether you're in a university, it doesn't matter. Keep coming back to the Word of God. You're going to be attacked. And you're going, to, you're going to have doubts thrown out there at you. But what God wanted was us to have confidence in His Word. This is how He's made Himself known. The Dead Sea Scrolls and many other archaeological finds continue to point back to the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of Scripture. I, I would even say the number of manuscripts. Most historical events, maybe there are two, three, four, five manuscripts that document those events. And most of those events, people don't even, they don't even question, well, we have, we have documents, we have manuscripts. How do you question that? Well, did you know there are thousands of biblical manuscripts? I mean, the number's not even comparable. They've been copied over and over again, and they go back thousands of years. 
just the manuscripts alone says something about this book is from God. The fulfillment of prophecies. I, I look back at the Old Testament and we realize there are 300 plus prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament before he came. You know, this is not, well, he came and so they went back and now they've written in some details to make it look like that they were prophesied. But again, the manuscripts has proven they're older than when Christ came. And over 300 marking things like where he would be born, how he would be born, marking what kind of life he would live, marking what kind of death he would die, how he would be sold. I mean, it's just detailed over the statistical improbability of that many prophecies all coming to fruition in one person is impossible. And it points to the fact that God inspired this book. What we have is from God. Even the nature of God points to the truthfulness of this book. Confidence that we have because God is truth. He does not, God does not lie. He, he gives us truth. And because he's given us this book, we can say, if, if God is true, what he says is true. If we have something that we say is his word, and we say it's God's word, and there's something that's not true in that, we're impugning the character of God. God is true, and what he says is true. And of course, the centerpiece of our faith, the resurrection, points to the fact that this book is true. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? If, if he didn't, then all that we're talking about is meaningless. And there have been people who have set out to destroy the faith, the Christian faith, to destroy the church, and to prove them wrong. And many of them will start with the resurrection. So I'm, I'm going to go back historically, and I'm going to prove to you that this resurrection didn't happen And it's amazing the number of people who become believers when they really investigate the historicity of the resurrection. You you see, it's it's hard to argue against an empty tomb. It's hard to argue against witnesses who who saw him die and who saw him alive again. It's hard to argue people who were willing to die for a lie. You know, if they're telling a lie, are they really going to die for that? And, of course, it's hard to argue how this book has withstood the test of time. But the resurrection, it's all there for us. We can have confidence that what we have is the Word of God, and it should be followed as the Word of God. And the one who should be giving us instructions because he designed the church. It's his church. He designed it, and he has a manual for how we should live it out and conduct ourselves. And so let me give you the third question. What's the purpose of the manual? It's kind of a code of conduct. Did you pick that up in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, verse 15? If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. There's a level at which all of us, God's given us a way to live our lives. Personal holiness. We know how to live because the Bible tells us. There's a sense in which, as a church as well, and that's where we are with 1 Timothy, that it's a code of conduct for how the church should live out its commission, live out its assignment, carry out its responsibilities, how we should behave, how we should conduct ourselves and conduct the business of the church. Now, don't lose sight of the fact that we're his. We're the sheep of his pasture. He is the good shepherd. The church serves the head. The church is his. And he put us here for his glory. 
Not our preferences, not our own approaches, not our clever schemes and strategies and whatever it is that will draw the next crowd. He's given us his basic principles for how we should conduct the business of the church. Doesn't make sense to the world. I mean, the world has a pretty clever way of trying to to grow things and to be certain things. And the world may not understand why we do certain things or don't do certain things. The world might not understand. You know, why, why do you preach against sin? That, you know, do you think that's going to get a crowd? Why, why are you trying to ask people to make sacrifices and to be one? I mean, do you think that's going to draw a crowd asking people for sacrifice, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow you? You know, is that, are you really trying to grow a church? You see, the world's way of doing things is a whole different way than God's way. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, I love how it's stated. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14, as far as how the world sees or doesn't see why we do or don't do what we do or don't do. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I don't know exactly what all that means. I know it means in part that people who don't know Christ and who haven't been changed from the inside out, those who have not surrendered and died to self and now living for Christ, it's hard for them to accept what the Word of God says, right? Now, what does this say about the church? Why, why is it that churches are just so all over the place? I mean, is, is, it, is it partly because maybe that there are also lost people within the church? I think that's why we continue to preach the gospel, isn't it? Because there are people who can sit Sunday after Sunday and hear a sermon and still leave the church doors without Christ. If you come to church every Sunday and there's never any hearing God, God changing you and working in your life, regardless of who's preaching, regardless of even what styles we're worshiping in, then there's a heart problem there. And I would say God wants us all to examine our hearts. It's in Scripture, isn't it? Let every man examine his own heart to see whether he's in the faith. There's a sense in which we have to come back and say, am I his or not? Am I following him or not? And if I'm not following him, there's a good chance that he's not my leader. And if he's not my leader, then I'm not in the faith. What's the purpose of this manual? Well, it teaches us how we should live our lives for his glory. Who should use this manual? That's the fourth question. Who should use this manual? Well, he says it in verse 15, If I delay, you may, know how, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's the family of God. That's who uses this manual. Families. A family is what God has created here in a local church like Lawndale. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We treat each other like brothers and sisters. Now, in my family growing up, we had certain rules. You know, if you weren't at the table when dinner was being served, you didn't eat. 
right? There are certain rules. When, when it was time for the doors to be locked and the lights to be off, you were in the house. If you want to sleep in the house. I'm exaggerating a little bit there. But I'm saying there are rules because we all live together. And if we don't have rules that we're operating on the same page, we're going to have problems. And, and it wasn't always easy at my house. My wife and I weren't always on the same page. I, I know that's completely surprising. Sometimes it would take me a little bit to get on the right page. But, but you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's not easy. Isn't it? Even as a husband and wife, we're not, we have to work at it and love each other through some differences. And, and even with our kids, there are times our kids definitely weren't on the same page with us. And there, were, there was a lot of work to do to shepherd them and, and not resort to the power tools that we often do as parents, right? Because we're big enough, we're mean enough, you know, we can be angry enough or threatened enough, we can get our way. But to use the right kinds of biblical gentleness and love and shepherding. And at times discipline was necessary, no doubt. But it took a little bit for us all to get on the same page at times, especially in, in transitions. And, and I would say that to you as a church family, right? It, 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 it's all, if we're making progress and we are moving forward, there's always going to be that uneasiness and uncomfort and sacrifice and working to get on the same page. And I, I would say that about our family at Lawndale. There's, there's work to be done. And my commitment to you is I want a church that's ready for its groom to come back. I, I think if I do anything less... If I do anything less as your pastor, and if I do anything less in leading our pastoral staff than to make our church more ready for Jesus' return, we've betrayed our king. We've sold him short. Not to mention you short and ourselves short, but most of all, him. Listen to what Charles Bridges said in his classic, The Christian Ministry. The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. Now, effulgence is radiance and splendor. It's a little bit of an older work and an older word that maybe we don't use too much today. But the church is a mirror that reflects the radiance and the splendor of the divine character. You know what God said? Be holy. Why? For I am holy. Love one another as I have loved you. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You see, as children of God, we should be acting like our Father in heaven. And, and even in a home, the family starts taking the characteristics of the leadership. And, and many kids start looking like their parents. And, and we should be looking more like God the more we grow. In our, if, we're, if we're growing, we should be more kind today than we were yesterday or 10 years ago or 30 years ago. We should be more patient than we were one year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We're, we're looking more like our Father in heaven. The church is the mirror. I, I love how Bridges says that. That reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. God makes himself known through creation. Well, he created the church. He's making himself known through the church. We're that mirror that shows the world what God looks like.
It's a pretty heavy responsibility. He goes on to say, and if the family of Christ be in household, the minister is the faithful and wise steward who dispenses the provision of the house according to the necessities of its several members. In other words, pastors, elders, see that we're, we're on the same team. The church as a whole, we're, on the, we're in the same family. We're willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish our mission. How can we all move in the same direction? What's well, impossible without help from God. But God has given us his word to instruct us. He's given us his spirit to lead us. And he's given leaders to give vision and direction for that. And we as a family, we work toward unity. We fight for unity. We pray for unity so that we can move forward for the kingdom of God. And if we do anything less than make disciples, then we're not even really a church. One level, we make disciples from the pulpit as pastors teach and feed the congregation. In another level, we make disciples in small groups as we interact and discuss the Word of God. If you're not in a life journey group, you need that uh, to fellowship with other believers and to hear the Word of God taught and discuss it with brothers and sisters. But there's another level even of one-on-one discipleship where we grow in our understanding of who God is. And we're discipled and we learn. And a church that's not making disciples is a church that's not really a church because that's the mission that we've been given is to go and make disciples. Now, I would say, too, it makes sense that God's Word is living and active because it reflects God. Notice, as he says in verse 15, the church of the living God. That's what, God doesn't change. He's living. He is I am. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and his word reflects that. It doesn't change. Not one jot, not one tittle is going to pass away from the word of God. It's living and active. And it speaks to us as much today as it spoke on the day it was written. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And isn't, isn't it interesting that he calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth? He puts a church in a community in, in the midst of a lost world who doesn't know it's right from its left. But yet, people that were created by God, loved by God, and His Son died for them. He puts us in a community, and, and in this community, it doesn't know truth. It's living in darkness. And the church has a chance by holding on to the truth of God's word and by being faithful to preach and to teach and live and not only preach it from the pulpit, but, but talk about it in our neighborhoods, in our classes, in our workplaces. We have a chance to be a pillar and buttress of truth in the world. Well, why should we use this manual? I think it goes back to creation. And of course you see it in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Paul uses that word mystery a number of times in his writings. Mystery is something we haven't known yet, something we really haven't put together. When death is talked about in the Old Testament, usually it's talked about in very foreshadowing kinds of ways. It hasn't been clearly known what happens when a person dies. And, and, and in the New Testament, God, God makes it all clear. It's, it's, it's laid out what he's doing, 
Paul even said about the resurrection, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15. And here it's the same way. I, I show you a mystery. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now in Ephesus, they were chanting about their false god. Great is Artemis. And maybe this is part of that answer to the world around them. Great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness being how we live our lives for the glory of God. Following His ways and not our ways. Living like He put us here on earth to live. Great is the mystery of godliness. Paul's saying now we can put it all together. Now we get it because Jesus has come what was promised even in the book of Genesis and all through the Old Testament now has been fulfilled for us. What we didn't understand previously even in the Old Testament now it's been made known clearly in the New Testament. One person has said the Old Testament is like an algebra book. It's got all these hard problems and X's and Y's and numbers and Z's. And, and the New Testament is like the answer key. It shows you the truth and the answers. And so Paul is saying, behold, I show you a mystery. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. How do we live like God intended? How are we restored to life like what was given to Adam and Eve? And then he gives us six statements all about this great theology of Christ. This is most likely a hymn that was sung in the early church. I would ask parents, uh, help your children memorize this. This is great theology. These are the things that we live and we die by. These are the things that somebody said, if you preach this in your church pulpit... Uh, we're going to put you in jail. We'd put our hands out and say, put us in jail. These are the kinds of things we would teach our children and teach our neighbors and preach around us that people would say, if you keep teaching that, we're going to take your life. And we'd say, you're going to have to take our life. This is, this is the basis of our faith. These are non-negotiables. Six truths. Notice what he said. This is how we become more of what God meant for us to be when he created us. He was manifested in the flesh. You see, Jesus came. He actually took on him. God, who was in heaven, gave up that position for that time, not losing his deity, but adding on humanity. He took on humanity, and he lived a sinless life. He was manifested in the flesh. John put it like this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so how do we know God? Well, the Word became flesh. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And He lived that sinless life and He died that sacrificial death. He went to the cross and He actually died. His, his heart quit pumping. His lungs quit breathing. He died on that cross. He was manifested in the flesh. But He was vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? It was resurrection. Incarnation, resurrection. His body didn't stay in that grave. He rose from the dead. The Spirit of God, go back, read Romans 8, how it just completely explains, Romans 8 and verse 11, how the Spirit of God raised this Jesus from, this de from the dead. And now, of course, the same Spirit lives within us. What a great power that God has given us that lives within us. But He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. Observation. How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, angelic testimony. They were there. Go back. Read the accounts of his resurrection. When the women went to the tomb in Matthew 28, what, they, they saw angels. And the angel said, he's not here. 
He's risen from the dead, just as he said. The angels saw it. And then it was proclaimed among the nations, the evangelization. The word began to get out. Where they, were, they couldn't hold it to themselves. The fact that Jesus was risen from the dead, and now he sent his spirit, and as many as received him, to them he gave his spirit, and they would be his witnesses, it says in Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the world. He was believed on in the world. As he was preached, he was believed on in the world. That's salvation. How can someone be saved? How can someone have access to this godliness, this life like God intended? Well, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You're saved not by what you can do, but it's by dying. It's by, it's by surrendering everything and saying, I'm not God and I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I surrender all to Jesus and I place my faith in his death and his resurrection. That's salvation. And he was taken up in glory. That's the ascension. So now he intercedes for us in heaven. And according to Ephesians 2.6, we're seated with him in the heavenlies. We live out his ministry. We live out under his authority. Because of where he is when he ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. You see, this is, this is what we're about. If we lose these truths, we've lost it all. We, we, we don't have a relationship with God. We don't know God. These are the things that God has made known, and it's all come together because Christ has made it known. And so what do we do with that? Well, it's what many of you wives have said, have said to your husband time and time again. Read the instructions. <laughs> this is it. Men and women, boys and girls, this is it. God, God had it written down so that we would know Him, we could enjoy Him, we could glorify Him. God had it written down so that we as a church family would know how to move forward, how to get on the same page, how to, how to be organized, how to preach the gospel, how to reach our world. Read the instructions. Read it, study it, memorize it, preach it to yourself, preach it to others. I'm telling you, we've hit some hard spots in these first three chapters of 1 Timothy. I've got some news for you. You, ha you haven't seen anything yet. Maybe you've read ahead. It doesn't get any easier for us. Why would we expect anything less from the Word of God? This great and glorious God who's so much greater than we can fathom, so much bigger than anything we could even imagine. He's made himself known through written word. We should expect to hit hard spots. We should expect to be challenged and to be changed by the Spirit of God as we do work with this book from God. It's a mirror that we look into and it reflects and shows us who we really are. It not only shows us Christ when we read it, but it, when, we, when we see Him, we're able to see who we really are and how short we come and how short we are from being the bride that He deserves. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. You can bank on it. Our job is to be a bride that's ready for Him. That when He appears in the clouds... 
Now, how great's that going to be? When he appears in the clouds and he gathers his people to himself. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Would you pray that with me today? God, like a bride waiting for a groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Maybe there's some individual things in your life right now that if Jesus appeared in the clouds, instead of, oh, what a wonderful event this is, oh, me, because I'm not ready. You know, there are things that God's been dealing with you about that he wants you to repent of and turn from and delete out of your life. And of course, as a church, I take this seriously as a pastor. God, what's, what's in my life? What's in the leadership? What's in our church as a whole? What do we need to do to be ready for you when you come back? What assignment have you given us in 2021 that we're to be faithful to? And we look at the Word of God at these principles and we see, God, this is what you've said of us. How do we get there? What do we do to be the church that you, that's ready for you? Every heart longing for our King. We sing, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Are you ready? Could you pray that along with the Apostle John in Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come? Can we say that as a church family? Or God, we've got so much more to do. We've got so many disciples to make. We, we have so many lost people around us. God, give us a little bit more time so that when we stand before you, you won't say, why have you settled for so less? Why have you done so little? Church, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, Jesus is coming back. Let's get ready. Father, we know this is your church. You've given us the owner's manual. I pray that we would settle for nothing less than absolute obedience, personally, corporately, in our homes, in our lives, in our church family. God, would you do such a work among all of us pastors and elders in the church that we would be the kind of leaders that you want us to be? Uh, would you do your work in our lives that we'll be united as we move forward? We pray that for our whole church family. Lord, would you work in all the members of Lawndale that we would be ready when your son comes back. Make us ready. Make us a beautiful bride for your son so that we'll bring him more glory and that we'll honor him at his return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we, we continue to worship with one heart, one voice.